I, I don't want to say I'm a self-made man because that would be false. My father left me a legacy of a business in a good cash position, and I could have either pissed it away or I, I could do something with it. And I chose to build a business. And I'm very mindful of the people that work for me. I'm very mindful of their benefits. When I make a decision, it's not just for the Cohen family. It's for 250 employees. You asked about writing a check. I'm not fearful of writing a check if I think the return is there. If I think that if we do the right things, that we'll engender trust with them among our clients. A lot of people go to the casino to gamble. And I don't want to say it's exactly the same, but I was gambling on myself. And there's nobody better in terms of risk than myself. And I was willing to take the risk because I knew that whatever I had to do to succeed, I, I would do. Work was not an anathema to me. And if I had to work harder, I worked harder. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. This podcast is brought to you by Oxbox. It always surprises me that the question, what do we do better than anyone else, doesn't get more attention. Or maybe a better question is, what do our customers think we do better than anyone else? While it's not sexy, the answer for Oxbox is jumbo and heavy-duty box manufacturing. With best-in-class capabilities, products, and service, Oxbox really is the best choice if you need big, durable boxes. Oxbox is strength you can depend on. Now you can get the same Oxbox strength with weatherproof durability. Their new Echo Board boxes are incredibly strong and yet earth-friendly. Check them out at www.oxbox.com. We're excited to have Bob Cohen of Acme Box join the podcast today. I'm always, I always enjoy speaking with Bob. A lot of that came through COVID and some of the weekly calls that AICC began to structure as we were charting unknown territory. And I was just fascinated by Bob's willingness to help his fellow box makers and share the things that he was trying to do to keep his people safe, to keep his customers uh, cared for, and to operate his business in a time of a tremendous uncertainty. And, and then from there, it really uh, moved into my involvement more directly with some of the analysts in the industry and just hearing Bob's insights has always been extremely fascinating for me. And to see him as an operator uh, is something that I admire. We appreciate you joining us. And what I'd love to do is you kick us off on maybe a, a few minute commercial on the company and just to tell us about what you do in the market today and, and who you serve, and then we'll get into some of the history. Thank you for the kind words. The, the box business has always been very kind to me. The people in the business are very willing to share. And so I think it's a bit of karma. Whatever you throw out comes back, hopefully. And I've always found box makers to be not only good in spirit, but also willing to help fellow box makers. And, and actually, I, I've always had a, a basic uh, concept of if somebody lets me into their facility, I'll let them in my facility, and they can be right down the street from me. Uh, I don't view competitors as enemies. I view competitors as somebody to either admire or to try to be like or to do something different than they do, but never as, uh, as enemies, even if they're direct competitors. To give, to give you a little background on the company, 
It was started by my dad in 1918. He uh, had an eighth grade education. He was a man of limited possibilities in terms of the job market at that time. And a lot of the men who, who uh, grew up in ethnicities, whether it be Italians or Irish or Jewish workers, a lot of times the power structure or their educational level didn't allow them to go into the mainstream businesses. So they found business either in terms of what I would call secondary types of products, products that deal with waste, deal with products that other people can't use and they find a home for them. And that's how my dad started. He started to pick up scrap paper and scrap boxes, obsolete boxes and job boxes and used boxes. And, and he resold them to the marketplace. At the time, Philadelphia was a cauldron of, of businesses, all types of businesses, uh, as, as most urban centers were. And my father didn't have to go very far to find people who would buy his product. He established his business in 1938 in, in terms of incorporation. And he ran a business where he developed a stock box business also kind of a very, very mini U-line concept of having boxes available for clients. For instance, if he had a box that he would buy as an obsolete box, he may not have that the next time the client called. So he started to purchase plain RC boxes that he would distribute to customers as, as they need. So Bob, he was basically like an early arbitrageur. He was, he was buying and selling on... It was very elemental. You know, it was very much... Customer called in, they wanted a 12-12-10, he had a 12-12-12, and they needed them tomorrow, and that's, that's the way he ran his business. Distribution business, basically, at the start. This is 1918, real quick, before you get into the, the, the part of, of distributing boxes. I mean, we're talking like pre-Henry Ford days. I mean, how is he, is it true that he's that he's picking up scrap paper out of a wagon? I mean, how did, this is a pretty wild yeah, start I, to the actually, business. I actually started with a horse and wagon. I, I know it sounds crazy, but that's, you know, he didn't have anything. His father was a tailor and was an immigrant from Russia. And his father started what we call the rag business. It was industrial rags that were used for stopping up mechanical oil and things like that. So he would take old clothing and cut it up. And that's where my father started his career and then went out on his own. And for many years, he had warehouses around Old City, Philadelphia. You wouldn't know the, the area except the, the Betsy Ross house, where Betsy Ross sewed the first flag for the new 13 states. He had warehouses all around that particular area. That was one of the oldest industrial areas in Philadelphia. That's absolutely crazy, Just just conceptualizing that. And he's starting to make a living from this, obviously. He's, he's growing a family, and I don't know how many you have, but it, it he starts to see a pathway here as he's buying and selling boxes. He would buy rejects and obsolete boxes in the marketplace and then resell them. Actually, when I got in the business, a lot of times we bought repetitive rejects. So I could actually look at a truckload when it's coming in when I started, and I could actually sell about half the truckload before I unloaded it. And then the balance, the 25% of that truckload, I probably would have for 30 or 60 <laughs> days. And, the, and then the other quarter of the truckload, I probably would never sell. You just talked about your involvement in this business. So how quickly and how old were you when you started getting involved? Well, I worked through college. Every summer I worked for my dad. 
He became ill when I was a junior in high school, and he passed away when I was a sophomore in college. And at the time, my, my older brother was in business before I came in. I went to Edge State, and I graduated with a degree in liberal arts, and I was going to be a history teacher. That was my interest. They asked me to join when I was coming out of school, and they asked me to come in because they needed help. And that was in 1969. I went into the Army at the time, served six months in reserves, and then came back out and then started to work. And, you know, now it's 53 years later, but that's how I started. We had warehouses with uh, loaded boxes, stock boxes and, and job lots. And, and frankly, we, we ran one truck and I would load that truck. And that's, that's how I started. When, when did you have the, the moment of realization that you wanted to be a part of the business? As you said, you wanted to go into teaching or history and you're working a little bit when you're home from college, but when did you finally realize that you wanted to, to, to jump in all in? It was a necessity for me to come in, but I, I never felt, it's very interesting you raise that question because I never felt put upon to join the business. I actually enjoyed it almost from the very beginning. And in fact, my three sons now work in the business, and I wanted to be sure that they didn't feel forced to join the business, you know, but they wanted to do it voluntarily because not that I was forced, but circumstances dictated that, you know, I help out the family. And, and my mother was a widow, and so earning a living was very important to support her. So you obviously, it's the family obligation it is really what pulled you. It was very strong. My, my father was a very modest guy. I had made quite a bit of money over the years, and I tried to parlay that financial success into what we eventually became as a manufacturer. So the lesson learned for me was modesty and prudence, being prudent with money, and being very careful about debt. Our, our listeners know you probably today as this really beautiful company with a lot of innovation, but what was it like when you first joined? Well, I'll give you a visual that hard to believe. We had a, a four-story warehouse, and I used to, to load the truck because the elevator was a, a freight elevator. was too slow. I used to throw bundles of boxes down onto the sidewalk. So that'll give you a visual of how we loaded a truck. Somewhere. It became apparent to me from the start of me being in business that we needed a one-floor operation. We needed something more modern. And in 1970, I moved us into about 25,000 square feet. And in 1973, I bought my first letter press. So that, that's interesting. So not to skip over that, but you did six months in the reserves. And, and within a year's time, you're moving the company, you're buying equipment. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story. People used to come into the office and they would ask, who's in charge here? Who's the president? And I, at the time, I had hair, long hair. And I, I had work shirts I used to wear. And I, I never admitted to being the president or being the elder because I was too young. So I always said he's not here yet, but that's leave great. me a message and I'll make sure he knows what you want to talk about. You said your brother was involved in the business and he had started prior to your involvement. Yes. Uh, how did that dynamic work? As you're making decisions, you, you say you're running it as a president, but you also have a brother in the business as well. How, how were those early days between the two of you? My birthright, my brother was the president, but my brother, being a terrific businessman in a lot of ways, was not a decision maker. And I had no problem making decisions. In fact, 
in some ways, I, I was glad to be partners with him in the beginning because I was probably a little bit too impetuous <laughs> about decisions. And he slowed me up a little bit, and that wasn't a bad thing. Uh, eventually, my, my brother and I were partners for about 10 years. It's a long story, but he met a girl who had studied in Israel, and they decided to move back to Israel. So in, in 1982, I brought my brother out, and he moved to Israel for about four or five years. But it was amicable. He just decided he... He didn't want to do any. Dad starts this business, right? He's incorporated in 1938. So he ran for 20 years, right? He's evolving. He's growing. Your, your brother's involved. You'd become significantly involved. So even prior to the takeover. But what's interesting to me is you kind of move pretty quickly to expanding it to, to one floor, but then you're buying a letterpress. So there's this shift for you where you decide, I think maybe I should be making some of this stuff. What was your thought process in that? Here's what happened. During the oil embargo of 1973, I could not get product delivered. In other words, I was brokering boxes. If somebody ordered 500 RSCs from me, I was, I was giving orders to sheet plants. If there was larger quantities, I was giving orders to uh, corrugators. I couldn't get delivery. So I called at the time. Bob Conley was the president of Conley Containers, which at one time was a very large independent in, in my marketplace. But he was a contemporary of my dad's. He was friendly with my dad. And I called him up and I said, look, I, I'm buying, I want to buy a letterpress. I have to make boxes. I had a taper. I said, will you support me? And of course, because of the family ties, he said, yes, I'll support you. And it was a really tough time. And I don't know if anybody on this call will remember 1973 or 1979, but you had to wait in line for, for gasoline. So you see the tight market that we just had in the pandemic. It was very similar to that. And I realized if I wanted to continue selling clients, I had to do something internally. I had to do something to be able to get product out. And I knew I could get sheets faster than I could get boxes. And so that's how we started. My first letterpress was bought from a company called St. Joe Paper, which is no longer in business. And I'll tell you a funny story. I bought the machine. It was loaded on a flatbed. And when it got to my location, I didn't know how to take it off. So, so I had a quick, I learned a quick lesson on having the machinery off uh, <laughs> on a truck. But a lot of it was trial and error. I was, I didn't have anybody to guide me. It was instinctual, and, and that's how that started. Talk about Acme today. Who you serve, your market presence, just like the business today, and then we're going to pop back into some of the the history. You're so modest. You basically went from buying a letterpress to now your three sons are in the business. So <laughs> yeah. we've got a lot to talk about. To give you some idea of uh, who we serve, we're in a metropolitan area, so we serve within about a 200 mile radius of our facility. Uh, my my rule of thumb is four hours up and four hours back. So. We serve about a five-state area, as far as middle Pennsylvania, and then uh, all of Delaware, all of uh, New Jersey, uh, parts of New York, and all of uh, Maryland. So we go as far down as Baltimore from where, where we're located. I, I would say up till 1989, almost every piece of equipment I bought was used. And in eight, 1989, I bought our first new piece of equipment, which was a, which was a high-core die cutter. And after that, everything we bought was new technology. But obviously, you have to make the revenue to, to do that. We morphed from our early, our original origin in Old City, Philadelphia, 
we moved to North Philadelphia in 1970 and moved to Ben Salem, PA, which is outside of the city limits, right outside of Philadelphia in 1980, and moved to our present location in Hatboro in 2001. Actually, we moved in about a month before 9-11, so it was, it was a, a period where we were hoping to increase our sales, and, and uh, we went into a semi-recession from that. Sure. But anyway, so our, our client base really runs the gamut from large national corporations to, to mom and pops. We're very heavy in pharma and in, in food products. And we, I would say that we've outlasted about 75 or 80% of our competitors. Our marketplace used to have anywhere between 25 and 30 corrugators from New York to Baltimore. And today there's maybe four or five. So. That's an interesting piece that, that I wanted to unpack that we were talking about earlier. And that's this dynamic of you getting into manufacturing. And at the time, you've been helping Box plants and sheet plants in the marketplace. Like you said, there was there were many more companies out there. Are they threatened by your entry into buying equipment? Are they receptive because maybe you're in a different market space or they don't see you as a threat? How did that unfold? It's interesting. I saw one of my competitors in New York about two, three years ago, and he gave me what I consider a left-handed compliment by saying, you're really making me up my game. So I took that as a form of a compliment. I don't know if you meant it that way. <laughs> But we we decided a long time ago that we had to go into automation and technology. I have to attribute some of my understanding of manufacturing and understanding of process to a gentleman named Tom Ferguson. The company is still there. It's Ferguson Container, and they're they're north of me. I think it's run by one of one or two of his sons. But Tom, I thought, really had it down how to develop a small manufacturer. And that's where I first saw an Ambiflexo folder gluer. It's a long story, but I was amazed by the technology. This is back in the early 1980s. And Tom had a box plant in Florida. And Tom was the kind of guy, if it got too competitive, he said, I've had it. And he closed the plant. And he had an Ambif 240 that had a minimal amount of use and I got on the phone with him and I bought it in five minutes. And it, frankly, I bought it and I hadn't seen it. I, I took my now wife down to Florida. We took a trip down and we watched it run. As a matter of fact, this ember was very famous. It was in a movie called Harry and Son that was filmed down in Florida. Paul Newman and I think it was Robbie Benson. And the interesting part is you see boxes flying out of the machine. And anyway, that was my first entree into having a inline flexofolder gluer. And frankly, if I didn't buy that machine, I wouldn't be talking to you guys. I would have been out of business. Mm -hmm. That really lit the way for me. The Ember technology, I thought, was really so far ahead of its time in terms of setup while run. And, and actually, I've always populated my plant with setup and run capabilities. Even if I had to dig, I have five bops lines and two of them I had to dig pits so that they could be set up while run. Yeah. Because I'm a great believer in moving fast between setups and, and run because that's our business. It's setup and run business. So I never understood opening and closing a machine. It always seemed like that just took extra time to me. Fair. You mentioned moving fast. What I think was moving fast is you put a piece of equipment in, in the mid to late 70s. You moved facilities then shortly after, and then you bought the Ember shortly after that. It seems as if things were really moving fast in that period of time. 
at, at a minimum, you, you, you were spinning about 10 plates at one time. <laughs> I, I'm curious, your evolution, the letterpress, the taper you, you said you had, and, and as you start equipping mm -hmm. the business, you said we were in the used equipment business and that, that mindset changed. A lot of your contemporaries that, that I know today were very successful in that strategy. How do you get comfortable with ever increasing check sizes to ad advance in a new technology? Is it just never being comfortable? Is that the, is that really the ultimate answer? Or? A lot of people go to the casino to gamble <laughs> and I don't want to say it's exactly the same, but I was gambling on myself Yeah, and there's nobody better in terms of risk than myself. And I was willing to take the risk because I knew that whatever I had to do to succeed, I, I would do. Uh, work was not an anathema to me. And if I had to work harder, I worked harder. And I saw opportunities in the marketplace because I saw people weren't investing in their businesses. There's the old theory that you live to work or work to live. And, and a number of my competitors, they work to have a lifestyle. And I never necessarily worked to have a lifestyle. I worked to have enough money to have what I wanted, but money was never the goal for me. It was never, ever the goal for me. It was to be better every day, to be a better producer every day, to be better at what we did every day. That was the impetus. It wasn't money. It was, it was if I was going to do something in life, I wanted to do it to the best of my ability. Do you think that, not to psychoanalyze, but do you think being the, the, the grandson of a Russian immigrant and, and the son of a, a, a man who cut his own path to, to make a living and had to work every day so hard is makes you who you are in terms of that mindset. I, I happened to be in Jeremy's car when you were going to try to chop up the tree that fell across your own driveway a couple months ago. Do you, do you think that's just the way you were raised and, and, and just, it's always been a part of your fabric or is it something that you just somewhere, you know, between the seventies and eighties, and, and you were like, man, I, I'm, I'm the only guy that can make this happen for myself. I, I don't want to say I'm a self-made man because that would be false. My father left me a legacy of a business in a good cash position and I could have either pissed it away or I, I could do something with it. And I chose to build a business and I'm very mindful of the people that work for me. I'm very mindful of their benefits. When I make a decision, it's not just for the Cohen family, it's for 250 employees. You asked about writing a check. I'm not fearful of writing a check if I think the return is there. If I think that if we do the right things that we'll engender trust with them among our clients. One of the questions you guys asked, what, what business are you in? And I think you're in, the, you're in the client business, you're in the customer business. You have to satisfy the customer. You have to satisfy what they want. You have to make yourself accessible, particularly in this day and age where if you call one of the major corporations and you try to get somebody on the phone, it's impossible. Yeah. Uh, I have a re live receptionist. Why do I have a live receptionist? Because I think the client deserves to get somebody human on the phone. And I think my client relations department, my customer service department, they have to respond to people. They have to respond not only to the sales force that I have, but they have to respond to the clients. I, I'll give you a, for instance, one of my largest customers today, my son, Eric is my top salesman. And he went into that client one day and their line was down. And the guy was complaining to my son about, he, he was buying from a, one of the major integrateds. And when he called to say his line was down, the woman on the other side of the phone said, I'm busy too. Mm. So my son knew the production manager. And he said, what's it worth to you to get 
boxes in the next couple of days to get your line moving. And the guy said, what do you mean? He said, if you give me money for plates, I'll have your boxes in two or three days or four days or whatever it was. And that, that now is a three or $4 million account for us. Wow. So it's just being opportunistic and recognizing the weakness of other people, the vulnerability. I'd like to say, particularly on, on integrated business, that if it's anything besides price, we'll win the business. If it's solely on the, the unit cost, we may not be there. But if, if it's service and quality and attention to detail and responsiveness and caring and passion, then we have it. We can sell it. When you were in those growth years of the 80s and 90s, you you mentioned buying equipment and rapidly growing. What were your goals then? And have you reached those goals today? I've exceeded what I thought when we moved to this building, which is 234,000 square feet. I thought if I could do 60 million square feet a month, that would be unbelievable. And we're double that now. I don't think you should set limitations. I just think that, I think if you do the right things, in business. And I think business is relatively simple. It's having a product that somebody consumes and and making sure that consumer feels that you care about them and you want to see them succeed and you want to see them profitable. If we can cut down inventories for people, if we can make their lives a little easier by being predictable and responsive, maybe that helps them be more profitable and, and helps them in their own business. And I know that's a long range vision for what your product does, But I think if you don't think that way, then you're just thinking about the next order. And we're always thinking about long-term relationships with clients. And I'm sure you guys feel the same way because you work in independence. They really, if I've seen million, two, three million dollar companies, businesses in the region. And as soon as one of the national accounts calls that plan up and says, I need boxes quickly, that guy's dropped to the back of the line. And you can only do that so many times to a customer before they say, you know what, there has to be a better way. This is a basic product. I have to find somebody more responsive. And hopefully we're there to fill that that bill. Bob, I want to go back to, as the business starts to, to grow, you, you talked about moving in, in 70 and then moving in 80 and then 2001. And I guess when you look back on that early days, you're involved in all aspects of the business and you you but your brother's portion of the business out and the business is growing. What was your philosophy and I guess goals behind adding talent and how comfortable were you letting go of the vine and letting some of these people start to cultivate their decision-making and their skills in the company so you could focus on other areas of the business? I'll answer the question and I want to go back to something else, another observation. I think you hire the best talent available. Dick Vermeil was a coach at the Philadelphia Eagles and when he drafted the best people available, nobody succeeds by themselves. You have to be a total narcissist to think that your your success is just based on your capabilities. I have a woman who's worked for me since high school. In fact, 37 years tomorrow, she's worked for me. She's got a photographic memory. We do 40-some thousand orders a, a year, and she can remember orders from three years ago. I don't know how she does it. <laughs> But she's incredible. How do you replace somebody like that? Now, this woman will never have another job. She worked for me from high school. And when she retires, she'll retire from here. How do you find people like that? And when you find them, you hold on to them. My CFO has been with me 25 years. His attention to detail is unbelievable. 
he worked for an integrated company and then worked out of the industry. I have a board of advisors and I didn't mention that, but I have a board of advisors. And one of the guys on the board was a industry guy who, who was a close family friend and had worked for a large integrated company for his whole career. And he said, you got to hire this guy. He worked for me. He left, but we really have to hire him. And 25 years later, he's retiring in March. And I have to tell you, I get compliments from my bankers and everybody else about his capabilities. He's really something else. So surrounding yourself with with talent is is very important. By the way, I I wanted to come back to something might seem the way I I do things. Before I I bought this building that houses my, my present operation, I bought two corrugators and I didn't even know where I was going to put them. <laughs> I know that sounds ass backwards. I'm sorry for the word. <laughs> this is an explicit podcast, Bob. We did that for a reason. So you're safe. I had an opportunity. I bought two narrow width corrugators. I only wanted to buy one, but it was a deal that I had to take both of them. And I like the idea of narrow width corrugators because I knew I could buy trim rolls at a price. Because I had come from that side of the business, buying obsolete boxes and then reselling them. It wasn't alien to me. And there were a lot of machines, a lot of paper machines that were 230 inches, built for 87-inch corrugators. And as people bought 98s and started buying 110s, there was all this trim. So actually, I enjoyed that that business for a number of years, but I was only using one of the two corrugators, really. And I realized that would be limiting in terms of volume. So I started to upgrade the first with a dry end, a 98-inch dry end, and then eventually a, a 90-inch in wet, wet end, and then another dry end. Sometimes I thought I was in the used machinery business. I must have gone through three or four, maybe five letter presses that I bought and resold. Wow. At one time, you could buy them and sell them. Today, it's just junk. <laughs> but machinery always interested me. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that Sometimes I move before I think, and sometimes I'm not sure that's the best way to run a business, but I'm instinctual. I I see where the market is. I could have certainly went into a sheet feeder as a sheet plant, and I probably would have been okay there, but I was trying to take the concept of quick delivery, another step, having overcapacity on my equipment where I had more machinery time than I had orders. So I could move stuff very quickly through the plant. And there are occasions where I can run uh, orders through the plant in five or six hours if I have to. Wow. And particularly with our automation, I think, Gene, you saw the automation, but it's really something else. And it's a metamorphosis. It's one thing, one capability. It leads you into something. I call our company a structural box company. And the reason I call it that is because we have access to different papers around the world. I was surrounded by graphic companies, and I, that would be expensive equipment and a an expensive learning curve for us. I didn't want to be called a brown box producer because I think that commoditizes you. What I wanted to be was a structural box company, which is what we are. And so we started to, to experiment with flute combinations and paper combinations. And I think we've done a, a pretty interesting, a pretty sizable role in not worrying so much about ECT, but worrying about performance. And that's where our thinking is. You mentioned your people, and I think maybe now is a good time to pivot. Your sons are involved in the company, Eric and Jeremy. Alex is involved as well. You mentioned early in our conversation, you never pressured any of your children to be involved. How did that all come about? Jeremy went to the University of Pennsylvania. He got a degree in bioengineering and then a master's degree in bioengineering. So I wasn't sure where he was headed. 
Uh, he worked for a bank in healthcare for about four years. And then he came to me one day and said, Dad, they're moving the office from Baltimore to New York. I don't want to move to New York. Do you think I could work for you? I said, absolutely. I felt that I didn't have a choice in the beginning. And I didn't want my sons to feel like that. I didn't feel that was fair. And so he joined me. And then my older son was, my older son graduated from marine biology and actually worked at a fish farm initially, raising tilapia fish. And he worked there about three or four years. And then he worked in New Jersey for the Department of Aquaculture. And then he came to me about the same time that Jeremy came, Eric came and said, do you think I could work in sales? I says, absolutely. That's how that occurred. And then my son, Alex, he graduated from Lehigh University and with supply chain management degree. And um, he went to work for Amazon and he worked there for four and a half years. And I, I think I asked him to come back because I would have liked to have seen him in, in the family business also. And so he, he moved back. He got married to a girl from Ohio. He was living in Ohio. And he's now running my quality department, quality and continuous improvement. And my son, Eric, is my top salesman. And Jeremy is my general manager. And I think they're all very capable guys. They all work. If they weren't workers, they couldn't work for me. If they were just there for the ride, I couldn't stand that. I don't care if it's blood or not. It's arm's length as far as I'm concerned. They have to stand on their own as far as I'm concerned. Because you don't get respect unless you stand on your own. Yeah. I don't care who you are. I was at an AICC dinner a long time ago and random table and a gentleman introduced me to his son and I was very proud of him. I said, how long have you been in the business? And he said, I've been there six months tomorrow. And I said, oh, that's great. What are you doing in the business? And he said, I worked in the plant for four months and now I'm the vice president of sales. And I just right. thought to myself, it's going to be a tough room when you have a lot of talent, a lot of experience, and a lot of people and you haven't really earned it. So I think your mentality of expectations from your own kids is important because you can't just mail it in. So I, I commend you on that. It can't be nepotism because people resent that. It's And he, it allows for resentment to build. I find that I try to treat everybody very fairly because I call it blue collar trust. It's a very thin line. And you guys know, all you have to do is broach that trust one time and your credibility is zero. So one of the things we do is we write a, a newsletter every six months and I tell everybody exactly what we're thinking, what we're talking about behind closed doors in terms of equipment. If we're going to buy equipment, for the most part, we get buy-in on it. We don't just bring a piece of equipment in. So you want people to feel part of the process. You want them to feel like they have a say. One, one of the main precepts of, of the way I do business is competency autonomy. In other words, if somebody shows their competence, it's your job. Just do what you want to do. I'm, I'm not going to micromanage you. If, if something's wrong, I'm going to call you in and I'm not, never going to embarrass anybody. I'm never going to scream at anybody. And, and my main business mantra is if we make a mistake, let's learn from it. Let's not do it again. Yeah. The finger pointing and the blame game is a horrible way to run a company. And a lot of family businesses evolve into that, where they, the, the family fights and then the people around them get afraid of the, the fight and the, you get intimidated by it. So you have to be very careful with people that work for you that they feel they're treated fairly and they're not subject to being humiliated or blamed. And I think that atmosphere makes people feel much more 
willing to demonstrate their capabilities. Is that a leadership method you crafted over the years yourself, or did you have somebody to learn from, as you did on the machinery side in, in Tom Ferguson? Is there somebody culturally or in terms of your leadership that you look, look towards for some guidance? I think it was Jack Walsh from GE who said, hire slowly, fire quickly. And I think there's something to that. One of the main components of managing people, you have to be able to fire people too. And that can be unpleasant. Sometimes the the, the person you fire, it's not because they don't want to do it. It's because they can't do it. And so that's probably the hardest person. But when you manage, that's one of the components of management. You really have to be able to, to do that when necessary. And I try not to fire anybody. I think... Hiring is the first step in really firing. If you hire properly, you're not going to be right all the time. If you do your due diligence, and a lot of times we'll bring somebody back two or three times for an interview, but I think if we hire somebody, we want that person to succeed and we'll give them all the room to succeed. Yeah. Going back to the business, there was a very nice article done in Board Converting News about your move to automation. I've seen the facility personally. It's tremendous. So I look at how you've moved and certainly not simplifying everything that you've done in the business, but the move from brokering to manufacturing, the move from letterpress to set while run EMBA, the move from old equipment and used equipment to new equipment, the move to even the next iteration now of automation. What's driven your motive and the success that you've had so far in, in that transition? A simple axiom, you've got to spend money to make money. I think a lot of people don't view investment in equipment as as crucial as they should. I, I think t- today, you guys know you're not going to buy a 30-year-old Flexo. It's just not going to do it yeah. because no matter what you do to it, it's not going to make a better product. It's not going to give you the speeds. It's not going to give you the setup times or whatever it is. I think the question of, uh, in bringing you automation is, is that you want to be the low-cost producer wherever you can. You want to pay your people, I think... The productivity, the newer equipment gives you, your cost per unit continues to go down as as you buy the more advanced equipment. So you can afford to pay the people more money because they're going to be more productive. And I, I think we're in a competitive business. That, and I think with all things being equal, I, I know in my marketplace, the independents that are left all spend money t- to make their operations better. And I want better competitors. I don't want a competitor who hasn't made the money and is just living on cash flow. You asked the question about automation. It's just, an, to me, the next logical step. And given the labor situation, I don't think it's going to be solved anytime soon. And so when I put in the new automation you saw, Gene, I, I eliminated 15 forklift positions. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't eliminate the jobs. I just repurposed the people. Sure. So... We now move material without forklift damage, without strapping damage, without pallets, with uniformity. And so what you hope all those things add up to is higher productivity, ease of operation. I don't want guys to work hard. I want them to work smart. Yeah. And so whatever I can do to facilitate that, everybody that works for me on the plant floor comes in to make boxes every day. And they'll make boxes if we have... Terrible equipment, they'll make boxes if we have great equipment. So you might as well give them the best chance for success because their success is your success. Do you think that, look back on like the evolution of maintenance uh, over the last 30 to 40 years, and it went from, it went from people who could machine parts 
on site. They could do electric. They could diagnose. This mechanical aspect has now moved into programming and PLCs and servo drives. And now you look at the investment in automation. Is access to the maintenance talent in that space been more challenging as you've made that move? As you've increased automation, does those complexities just shift maybe from the direct labor of the guy that's catching off the back of a 35-year-old machine to somebody who can understand how to program and maintain conveyance or equipment? I think your question is a very valid one. It's very difficult. First of all, cross industries, everybody's looking for maintenance people, people with skill. So you can hire somebody, and we have. We've hired somebody, and three months later, they're recruited and taken out. Yeah. The wage level on maintenance people has gone up significantly. There's a couple trade schools that we've tried to bring people in from, but if they can be a car mechanic, the the rates are $100 an hour or $120 an hour. So those guys are getting paid $45 an hour, $40 an hour. So it's very transitory now, and you try to make it economically successful for the guys to stay with you, but we have had difficulty maintaining an extensive maintenance crew. And so what happens is you depend on the OEMs much more for their expertise. So it's more costly, but sometimes you don't have a choice. Bob, a a couple, couple things been rolling around in my head as we, we talk about this, you talked about Eric and Jeremy and Alex in the business and, and you're almost into your 54th year of, of being involved in the, in the company. What are your goals? Are you so passionate about this space that you're just committed to maintaining this rate of speed? Do, do you have designs to, to slow down and transition? You think about that thing or? Oh yeah, you have to, because I'm at an age where every day is, is a blessing. So you never know. And also I think you have to understand your own relevance to the process and to the company. Some of the technologies pass me by, I have to admit it. I understand what technology does. But they have a passion for it. Obviously, independence are approached all the time to be sold. Yeah. If money was my object, obviously the the value is here. But um, I'm not interested. I I enjoy the people. I enjoy the growth. I I enjoy making a difference in people's lives. It also gives me a basis. I do a lot of charitable work. I do a lot of work with charities in the inner city and in Philadelphia. And I support schools like, because education to me is everything. What I learned from my own family experience is, and one of the tenets in, in Judaism is education. And even though my father had an eighth grade education, there was no question my brother and I were going to go to college. And so what I want to do is give that same dream to other people coming out of more impoverished circumstances. My wife and I, are involved in about six or seven schools in Philadelphia, some of them formerly Catholic schools, because they're the ones that stayed in the urban center. They're the ones that's, that fought it out when everybody else fled. Yeah. And they're making a difference. I'm on the board of a Jesuit high school called Cristo Ray, And one of the reasons I wanted to be on the board is I liked the, the formula they had for their success of their students. This is a school that's been in Philadelphia. There's a number of them around the country, but this has been in Philadelphia for the last nine years. And every kid has been accepted to a two or four year university program. And the way this works is the kids work private industry or nonprofit one day a week and then vigorous academics four days a week. That's amazing. It's an amazing school. 
Uh, I'm proud to be on the board. They give a pathway for these kids to be successful. Not only do they watch them in high school, but because of the cultural issues that they face in college, they trace them through college too. I realize how lucky I am and I realize how fortunate I am. And I think doing something for other people that allow them to gain access. My wife and I do scholarships for a variety of different schools. One of the organizations we're involved in started out in Camden, New Jersey, which is a, a very poor area. And some of these kids are homeless. And a year later, they've got $50,000 a year jobs doing coding, doing uh, computers. That's very rewarding to us that we can help help out that yeah. way. You mentioned earlier just some of the challenges with labor and what coming down sure, the road. Sure. But in general, what keeps you up at night with your business and I guess bigger picture with the industry in general? I think the future of the industry is bright. I always worry about the independent market, I think, is crucial to the industry. It's a counterpoint to these big guys. And you've got the five major producers have 80% of the production capacity. I look at this merger between Smurfit Kappa and uh, and Westrock, and you know they, they talk about too big to fail. I think it can be too big to succeed. Think about it, 500 plus box plants and 61 mills. How do you manage that? Unless you have a, a whole level of entrepreneurial lieutenants, it's unbelievably, how do you allocate capital? How do you, you know, so that, that's a concern. I, I'm not concerned about the overall health of the industry. I'm worried about the shrinking uh, independent base because I think the entry point for independence to come into the marketplace, when I started for $50,000, you could be a sheet plant. Yeah. Today, it's $10 million. So entry is very difficult. I'm, I'm so, glad you addressed that. That, was, that I, was one of my questions that was rolling in my head. Do you think someone could do what you did 53 years ago? I think the answer is no. You just hit it right on the head. You, you can't, not, even if, if a single site independent wants to sell his business, the, the, the buyers is saddled with payments to pay off this business and can't afford to invest in, in new equipment. It's, it's a curse almost. That's why equity buyers are not the market. If somebody would buy us, it would be a strategic because if they paid 12 times or whatever the number is, it would only cost them half that because the integration of the tons is what they're looking for. Yeah. If you buy 70, 80, 90,000 tons, you're 25%, 30% of, the, of a mill capacity. And that's what these guys are looking for. I, I think they care that the business is an ongoing business, but they're much more concerned about where we put our tons. It's very interesting. Thank you. Is there anything you want to share that you've been thinking about since we invited you to this podcast that we might have skipped over or not addressed? One of the questions was lessons learned. And I think what you have to learn in business is humility. Not everybody can, can accept that because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are naturally not narcissistic, but very sure of themselves. But I think I, I bought another business back in the eighties outside the industry and I didn't do very well with it. And it taught me some powerful lessons about humility and pitfalls to avoid. And I think it's hubris. Mm. People who think too much of themselves, take themselves too seriously. I'm not a Pollyanna, but I just think you're in business. You're a businessman. You should conduct yourself that way. You should be responsible. You should have integrity. You should have a reputation is very important to me that people view us as a legitimate company, as a legitimate competitor. And so you know, those are the things I, I thought I would mention. That's, yeah. Someone said to me a long time ago, a mentor of mine, it's all about 
your ability to put your head on your pillow at night and know that you've done the right thing. And I think that when you lead with that, you can avoid some of the pitfalls and, and some of the things that you talk about that I think are, are core to, to how you operate. Yeah. When you look at yourself in the mirror, is there something you're ashamed of? Is there something that you, know, that you did that you shouldn't have done? And I think business is pretty simple. It's like blocking and tackling. Yeah, there's innovation, and we're but we're in a basic business. And one of the interesting things is I always call it a grinded-out business. You can't be absentee and run a box plant. People look to you for leadership. They look to you for information. Guys on the floor are not unsophisticated, and they know when things are good and when things are bad. And when they see capital investment, they know that you're thinking about the future and you're thinking about their employment, and you're thinking about their benefit. It doesn't always translate to everybody, but it translates to a lot of them. I, think. I listen to you, and I'm very inspired, to be honest with you. We've not spoken before this call, and I know a little about your company just from what I've read and heard and seen. In, in your message on leadership, your perspective on growth and the way you run your company, your mentorship that you've offered to all these underprivileged folks is very inspiring to me personally. And I know our listeners are going to find that same message in this time together. I sincerely appreciate you opening up and giving us this time together. Bob, is a very good time. Well, Joe, thank you. Thank, thank you for the compliment. I'm not holier than that. No, and I think that's I, I, why, just I think that's why it, it hit home so much is your humbleness during this time together. Yeah. But, but I do think that I, I think that people can paper themselves over all kinds of material goods, but we're in this life for something else other than just self-aggrandizement. Uh, you want self-fulfillment, but some of that self-fulfillment comes from helping others. And that, at least for me, that's the case. That's been the case. You are very humble. And I was fortunate enough to, to move up in this organization. We got a very nice email from you offering to help me in any way you could. And there's just, you're, you're a diamond in the rough. I think in the way that you uh, carry yourself in, again, your humility, in your hard work, your work ethic. And I think it's a model for anybody, not only in this space, but any space. And I think I, we'd need another five or six hours to unpack so many of the things that you've done in this industry, but we really appreciate you sharing some of your story and wish you nothing but continued success on all the things that you touch. Thanks so much. Well, well thank you very much. Thank, thank you for considering me, and I hope, it, I hope it's been worthwhile. It has. Breaking down boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 